Good morning once again and welcome. My name's Craig. I'm the senior pastor here and it is our privilege to have you with us. Uh, thank y'all for showing up. It looks like everybody sat right here and nobody sat back there this morning. So uh, if, we, if we lean a little bit, you'll understand it's because y'all sat in the wrong spot. Come on. Hey, just check, check. I put batteries in. Check. Check. We are not off to a good start. Not at all. We good? All right. If it goes bad, then I'll blame me, I guess. I don't know. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. It starts like cutting out. Somebody like flag me down, and I'll, I'll we'll fix something. So um, uh, that's where, where we are. We're gonna be in the book. All right, we're gonna be in the book of Acts, chapter fourteen. One of y'all come take this. All right. Like that. We're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 14, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you have them there, uh, or look on your phone, however you're going to do it. As you're turning, I have a piece of paper that's a pretty awesome piece of paper here for our church. It is a receipt. It is a receipt for $180,408.73, which is the check that paid off our mortgage on Friday. So... We will, uh, we will celebrate that uh, a little more formally in a few weeks, but uh, I have proof that the check went. Uh, I assume it cleared the bank. So, you know, if it, if it didn't, we'll address that later. Uh, certainly celebrate God's goodness towards us uh, in knowing that the, the facility in which you sit right now is completely free and clear. Uh, I would remind you um, kindly uh, that doesn't mean you should stop tithing. Please. Um, so, uh, uh, but seriously, so many of you have given sacrificially over the last eight weeks to make sure that we could get that done. And uh, uh, so we've raised about $240,000 in the last eight weeks, give or take, um, since December the 1st. So, uh, what a wonderful uh, gift that you all have given to your church at the end of the year and the beginning of a new year. So, thank you so much for that. All right, hopefully you've made it to Acts chapter 4. You know what, let's just pray. Let's just celebrate that just for a moment. Let me, let me pray for us real quick. Father God, we just thank you so much for your goodness toward us. Father, we're going we're gonna to take a moment, in, in just a moment, and we're going to read your word, and we're going to hear you speak through your word this morning. But Father God, we would be remiss if we did not pause and celebrate your goodness towards us. Father, thank you for meeting our needs above and beyond what... Uh, we could have anticipated, Father God, for working in accordance with your goodwill, uh, Father, to uh, bring about uh, the blessings that we're enjoying as a church, Father God. I pray that we would not only celebrate you, but Father God, we would be faithful stewards of the gifts that you've given. Help us, Father God, to utilize the gifts that you've given, the funds that you brought in to further your kingdom right here in Ma Malvern Hill and in Camden, South Carolina. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 14. We're going to begin reading in verse 8. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. And we're going to read verses 8 through 18. Now at Lystra, or Lystra, depending on which, I'm always a long why there. But now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. 
He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, who was, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring, uh, you, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let's pray once more. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would not return void. Hide me behind your cross. Work today. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul and Barnabas' ministry in, Ly- in Lystra, I almost said Lycra, but that's, you know, a garment, uh, uh, clothing garment. Fabric, thank you. It's, we're off to a really bad start for the day. Paul and Barnabas' ministry in Lystra is important for a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons it's important is because it is the first example we have in the book of Acts of a speech or a sermon being given to an entirely Gentile Audience, Remember, Paul's pattern, we talked about this last week, Paul's pattern is to go to the synagogues, go to a city, and in the new city he goes to the synagogue. And, and there in the synagogue he preaches there uh, to what would be primarily a Jewish audience, sometimes a mixed audience, but he preaches the word there. And over time, they'll get tired of hearing what he has to say. They run him out of the synagogue, and he goes from there to other places in the city, and he, he begins to speak. And usually he's invited in someone's home, and there they'll gather people together and he'll speak. But when he gets to Lystra, and remember, he's only here because why? Because they stoned him and ran him out of town at Iconium. Remember that? We saw that last week. They run him out, and we saw God's goodness because Paul was preaching the gospel there in Iconium. They they get angry. They stone him, but the stoning of Paul actually actually supports or, or proves to be a blessing to so many others because as they run Paul out of town, the gospel is spread. God can even work in really bad situations, and so... He's there. Lystra's a pagan city. We read in here what? There's a temple to Zeus as they walk through the gates. And there in this pagan city, the Bible says that Paul's got everybody together and he's speaking to them. Now, what do we want us to see in this passage of Scripture? If you walk away with nothing else, I want you to see this this morning. Paul's ministry in Lystra looks very different than the ministry he's going to do in almost any other place. You've got Lystra and you've got Athens and everything else looks different. Now, if you grew up in church, or maybe you've been a Christian for 20 or 30 years, maybe you've begun to notice that ministry today is different than it was 15, 20, or 30 years ago. I want you to pay attention to the fact that Paul's ministry looked different from town to town and day to day. That as Paul engaged others with the gospel, Paul's ministry method shifted. The gospel remained the same, but his ministry methods changed as the needs of the people around him. Paul's efforts 
were to reach as many people as possible. And you recall that he goes on to say what? I became all things to all peoples that by all means I might reach as many people as I could with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul desired to make God known to the world around him. How did Paul work? Paul worked with the tools that he had. And he worked diligently even in pagan cultures to make Christ known. This morning as we wrestle with that question, how is God made known? I want us to keep in the back of our minds or maybe in the front of your mind if you need to the reality that the gospel never changes but the methods that we use to proclaim that gospel may shift through time or in the particular place that we're going to be or even from person to person as you seek to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to point out three primary things from this passage of Scripture. And we're going to be a little bit odd. Normally, you're going to see that as we work through a passage, you're going to be able to go, oh, well, there's, there's point A, point B, point C. Today, we're sort of looking at these things a little bit out of order as they are in the Scripture text. But hopefully, it'll all make sense as we work our way through it. So how does God reveal Himself? The first thing that God makes Himself known, God's grace is evident in creation. Now, this is the presentation that Paul makes to these people. He says, look, hey, I want you to know that God has made himself known through the seasons. He's given you all these things. But at what point does Paul make that information known? Now, we're going to get to the healing in just a minute. But if you'll pay attention, what happens? Paul begins to preach. And when he begins to preach, something crazy happens. A guy gets saved or healed. He jumps up and he runs around. And when that happens, the Bible says that the people ran out and they began to prepare to offer a sacrifice. Here's what's going on. Paul and Barnabas do not speak the language of the people of Lystra. They don't know what's going on. So imagine, you've done, have you all ever done a really good thing and saw people get really excited? So you imagine they did a really great thing. They saw God do this incredible work. And when that happened, the whole city sort of rejoiced. And maybe Paul and Barnabas are like, yeah, we got a chance. Look at what's happening. Everybody's excited. They're running around. They're preparing a feast. They're going to celebrate what God's doing here. But instead what happens is they come and they say, hey, you're Zeus and Hermes and we're going to offer a, a bull. We're going to offer a sacrifice to you. And all of a sudden Paul and Barnabas go, whoa, this isn't right. They rip their clothes. You'll turn back with me to Acts uh, chapter 12 when Herod was seated on the throne, the Bible says in Acts chapter 12, verse 22, and the people were shouting the voice of God and not a man. The Bible says that Herod apparently took that and enjoyed every minute of it because instead of tearing his clothes and saying, whoa, that's not me, the Bible says immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he had not given God the glory. Paul and Barnabas wanted to make sure that they were not being glorified for what had happened here, but that God was being glorified. But when they began to try to minister to this group of people, the problem they ran into is that they didn't have a background in the Scriptures. Usually when Paul ministers in the synagogue, he's starting with the Word of God. He's starting with the Old Testament law. And he begins to work his way through the God who'd worked through all these things. We can go all the way back to the stoning of Stephen, can't we? And there Stephen stood before them. He gives them an entire history, walk through the Old Testament to bring them all the way up to Jesus. Well, when Paul is ministering to this group of people, he doesn't have the history of God's Word to lean on. Instead, what he has to do is he has to go and start somewhere else. He has to go further back, and he goes all the way back to the very beginning. He begins to speak about God's work in creation. See, nature reveals God's grace and existence, but in our sin, we refuse to see Him. Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We are men just like you. And then he goes on and uh, he says... This is the living God. We want you to turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. 
He says, I don't want you to be focused on this. I want you to look at everything around you and know that there is a God who created all of these things. You know, because of our sin, we, we have a tendency to make up all sorts of excuses about creation to keep from giving God glory. These people saw an incredible thing that happened. Instead of giving glory to the God around or to the God of the universe, they wanted to try to find a way to explain it away. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Did you see that? Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. See, nature screams God's glory, but in our sin, we suppress the truth. How many of you have ran to God's word, saw something in his word that he said, and you tried to deny it? We've done that before, haven't we? We've tried to explain it away. How many of you have seen God's work in creation and tried to explain away God's handiwork there? The Bible says that that doesn't happen by accident, that people actually work to suppress the truth. It's because of the sin that lives within us for those who have a biblical background when we, be, we want to share the, the hope of the gospel with them we can be, begin with the truths of scripture increasingly however we live in a culture that does not have um, they have access but they don't have uh, they don't have personal experience with the bible and with the things of the lord Increasingly, as a result, we are speaking to what Paul would see as a Gentile audience, an audience with no background in the scriptures and the traditions of the Bible. And we may have to begin not with the Bible, but at the very beginning, right? We don't begin with John 3.16 for people who have no idea what John is. We have to go further back a lot of times to try to lay a foundation. Folks, we can't expect people to have any understanding of the scripture anymore. We can't expect people to have any understanding of the Scripture anymore. Should they? Yes. Do we wish they did? Yes. But increasingly we live in a culture where the majority of people today are not in, involved in church right now. Right in our own community. Most people are not involved in a church anywhere. We shouldn't expect them to have an understanding of God's Word. We want to think about how it is that we can make God known to people around us. Many people 40 years ago were trained in evangelism methods that focused on getting to the gospel quickly. Often you begin with the book of Romans or with John 3.16, but in our increasingly pagan culture, we've got to go further back. John Stott says it this way. says, we need to learn from Paul's flexibility to meet people where they are, perhaps in the worship of nature or in search for meaning, a longing for a community or a desire for personal significance. We've got to begin where people are. We begin where we can, Right? with the gospel but wherever we begin we must get to Jesus he is the gospel and he is hope but I want you to know that God's grace is evident in the creation around us so if people don't have a background in the scripture they don't have a background in the church what hope do we have to expose them to the things of the Lord we can point them to the heavens above we can point them to the oceans we can point them to the glory of God in creation we can point them to the longing that exists in their heart. They know that there's something more in the world around them. God's grace is evident in creation. The second thing we see here this morning is God's power is shown in personal testimony. When this man started to walk, his life was a testimony of God's work. How many of you, how many of you, when you got saved, your life became a testimony of God's work? A lot of you, by God's grace, were raised in the church and, and there was never a, a period of, of prolonged wandering from the things of the Lord. And folks, do you know that that's a picture of God's grace? 
Some of you came to the Lord after years of rebellion, however, and in those moments, your very life became a walking testimony of God's work. I want you to know that personal testimonies are powerful examples of God's work. Personal testimonies are powerful examples of God's work. In John chapter 9, when that man received his sight, everybody took notice. The Pharisees took notice. and They got mad at his parents because this guy was healed by Jesus. They went to his parents and said, what's going on? His parents are terrified. So they're like, hey, don't ask us. He's old. Ask him. They walk him in. They say, brother, what's going on? Tell us. Testify. What happened? He said, what happened? I don't know what to tell you. I was blind, but now I see. The Bible says they got frustrated. He says, what, do you want to become his disciple too? Then he got really mad. They didn't want to hear that. Our our, our changed lives are powerful testimonies. Testimonies can be powerful because in those things we see what was and then what is. Not only are personal testimonies powerful examples of God's work, miracles are God's interruptions into the natural world to display His power and glory. You say, do those things matter? Do those things match? What is salvation other than the miraculous work of God's Holy Spirit in the life of a sinner? Do you know that God actually calls for the church to engage in the miraculous at times? Y'all should know, by the way, I'm I'm setting y'all up for the last point, so keep working with me. Smile, please. God calls the church to engage in the miraculous at times. Now, we engage in the miraculous when we share the gospel. We engage in the miraculous when we celebrate changed lives. We engage in the miraculous when we see people saved, right? But the Bible also calls upon the church to do things like lay hands on the sick, to pray over the sick. We are to engage and and to, to believe that even in those things that God can and does work. We should never lose sight of the fact that God can still heal miraculously, that He can do incredible things through the prayers of His people. We should never allow the abuse of those scriptures to negate or, or to take away from our privilege and responsibility to obey the scriptures, right? There's, a, there's an opportunity for us in those moments but what is a miracle? There's, there's this, it's this interruption when God intervenes in the natural world, puts everything on hold, and then He does something completely unexpected. We can look at the Old Testament miracles, right? Nobody really expects water to stop flowing, and yet God pulled that off. Nobody expected the Nile to turn red, and then there it happened. God brings water from a rock. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus calls forth the dead and they live. Understand that a miracle is not natural. A miracle is an interruption in the natural world. But I want you to understand this as well. Personal testimonies and even miraculous experiences of the Lord still need to be explained. Look at what happened in Lystra. God didn't get the glory for this man's healing. Instead, what happened is when this man was healed, the people gave glory to Zeus. How many of you have seen people try to rob God of His glory by taking personal responsibility for the work that God's brought about in their life? How many of you have seen God, others try to rob God of His glory because they wanted to give glory to anything other than to the Lord? 
Without explanation, our sinful hearts create sinful and ungodly explanations for natural and supernatural phenomenon, even for the miraculous around us. Just as with natural revelation, sinful and ungodly explanations seem to haunt us. We suppress the truth rather than engage with the God who has brought these things about. We turn to our own sinful explanations. Why do we do that? We turn to our own sinful explanations. We turn to our own sinful explanations because we're prideful. See, to trust God's answers is to humble ourselves, but when we give God glory, we submit to that God. I'm not sure that I use many words on a consistent basis as your pastor that is more offensive to the modern world than submit. It doesn't matter in what context I use it. It is not celebrated. When the Bible says that wives should submit to their husbands, I'm accused of being abusive and toxic by even clinging to God's word. When we are told to submit under the mighty hand of God, the pride within us rises up and reacts. Who are you to tell me? And so even when we find ourselves faced with the miraculous, we don't submit. We don't surrender. We rise up in rebellion. I'll never forget reading Carl Sagan for the first time. Carl Sagan, if you don't remember, Carl Sagan, you know, like literal rocket scientist, uh, had its specials on PBS for years and years and years. But I read Sagan for the very first time and prepared myself to have all of my religious convictions challenged and maybe even overturned. I mean, here I was engaging with one of the brightest minds in the world, certainly far, far more intelligent than I could ever hope to be. And I read his book, one of his books. I worked my way, I should I should explain. I worked my way through one of his books, right? This this wasn't one of those things where I just sat down with a, you know, a cup of coffee and and had it out in in, you know, 45 minutes or so. No, I worked my way through. And as I as I read, he 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 worked diligently to tell me about all the places where life comes from. He built his case for millions and billions of years of macroevolution bringing about life on earth that would have evolved from a tiny speck of organic matter and he builds his case for the entire book and then he gets near the end. And in the, it seems like it was in the very last chapter. Near the end of the book, he's going to explain to me where life originated from. And I buckle my seat, but I remember reading and anticipating this chapter going, this is going to be the greatest challenge to my Christian faith and my theism that I've ever engaged I might have been being a little melodramatic, but I'm telling you, this is where I was. I was fully prepared for Carl Sagan to just drag me around by my ear and show me exactly where I was wrong. Challenge me. And instead we get to the end and Carl Sagan says that life on earth, all life has originated from one place where, where organic matter has, has evolved over millions and billions of years from the place we are today. And I said, but where did this organic matter come from? And Carl Sagan said, aliens. 
I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Hold on. So you're the smartest human on the planet. Maybe an exaggeration. I don't know, but he seemed that way to me at the time. And he took a cop out, right? He took the easy way out. Where does life come from? Aliens. Now, when he says aliens, let me explain. He doesn't mean little green men with big eyes or anything like that. What, what he meant in that statement was that life had originated somewhere outside of our solar system, maybe outside of our galaxy. And in that place, organic matter had become attached to an asteroid or a comet or something else, and it entered into our atmosphere here on Earth. And it exploded on impact, but in that place, organic matter was deposited on Earth. And from that little speck of organic matter, you and I arrived. And I remember closing the book and thinking, wow, Carl Sagan is so opposed to the idea that a God could exist that would bring about life that he would take an even greater stretch and suggest that life came about as a result of a speck that traveled here millions of light years to arrive. And then it begged the question, for what? Dr. Sagan, where did that organic matter come from? Folks, in our pride, we do everything we can to explain away God so that we don't have to submit and surrender. And when we can't explain Him away, we at least try to soften the edges or explain some of His expectations away or shift blame. The question we're wrestling with this morning is this. How, does God, how is God made known? What if God has made himself, made, made himself known to you, but you've refused to submit and surrender to him today? God shows himself in some ways through personal testimony. God's power is shown in the miraculous. God's power is shown in nature. But God's salvation is given through his word. The first two parts of this sermon have been a little challenging to get through. I appreciate y'all staying with me. Because this is where we want to camp out and where we're going to hopefully seal this deal today. You see, it's important for us to understand and to acknowledge that, that nature and creation screams of God's glory. It's, it's important for us to understand that personal testimonies and miracles are powerful. But folks, nothing else matters as much as the word of God uh, you heard me say that you can't always get there straight away that's right sometimes we have to begin where we are but we've got to always be working towards the word why because creation may be a powerful apologetic for God's existence but it does not tell us of Christ's salvation Personal testimonies are powerful messages of God's work, but salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. Salvation is found only in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't need to look any further than this. Paul and Barnabas preach, and as they preach, a man is changed. 
But when the people look at it, they're not immediately saved. This is why you can't cut your grass in the name of Jesus and hope that somebody comes to Christ. Right? I hope that you cut your grass in the name of Jesus. You do all things as unto the Lord. But nobody ever drove past my house and went, Wow, that is the most godly grass cut I've ever seen. Could you please tell me what it is that has caused you to be such an amazing and meticulous landscape? First of all, nobody's ever driven by my house and asked me why I was such a meticulous landscaper. Um, don't judge me. But um, nobody ever did that, right? They, they, they never did. Nobody ever saw the things that I did and said, wow, tell me about Jesus. Unless they had heard somewhere about Jesus. They might have looked at the things I did and said, why did you do that? Yeah, well, I've had that before. Why did you do that? And in that moment, I have an opportunity. But if I just allow them to fill in the blanks, I'll never forget. Somebody asked me one time, why, why are you going to do this for that person? You're trying to earn a little extra money? And I said, no. They, they needed me. They're part of my church. We're just going over there to do this. And this person went, why in the world would you do that? What's wrong with you? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. But, you know, she didn't interpret Jesus from my good deed. I had to tell her about Christ. No one comes to salvation in Christ without an encounter with the Word of God. Romans 10, 17 says this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. If you don't have that underlined in your Bible, turn there right now. If you don't know where Romans is, it's the next book over. So you've got Acts and then Romans. Matter of fact, you can underline about all of Romans chapter 10. If you'll memorize and, and remember something like Romans 10, 9 through 17, you're going to have a whole lot of what you need to share the gospel with other people. You're also going to understand how important the Word of God is. Now, you're going to read this right here and you're going to say, wait a minute, Craig, in Acts chapter 14, I don't see them really getting to the Word. That's, that's right, we're going to keep going and we're going to know they get there. How do we know that they got to the Word? How do we know that they preached the Word? Because we're going to see later in the book of Acts that there were converts in Lystra. One of them is a young man named Timothy. He's kind of a big deal as we work our way through the New Testament. There's no way that these people came to Christ unless they had been exposed to the very Word of God. Salvation comes through hearing the Word of God. That means that we've got to do everything we can to connect with lost people, okay? That's right. We've got to do all that we can. But in our connection with folks that don't know Jesus, understand this, they have to hear the gospel. Here's the hard part. Do you remember last Sunday's sermon? If you were here, I hope you do. One of the things that we talked about last Sunday was that we've got to preach or speak or share in the kind of way that we can be heard and understood. When we are doing ministry in a culture that increasingly has no connection points with Christ, we have to be prepared for our evangelistic encounters to be ongoing and time-consuming. We have to be prepared for that. There are going to be opportunities for you where the only evangelism opportunity you have is to give somebody a Bible track or maybe to, to give them a couple of verses and say, hey, will you go read this and tell me what you think? But folks, I, I want to be honest with you. Most of the time when you're working with people who have no connection point with the Scriptures, no connection point with the church, you're going to have to spend more time than that with these people so that they can be exposed to the Word of God. And here's what you need to know. Now, again, just some of y'all been in the church for a while 
And y'all are going, you don't need anything but the scripture, Craig. Who do you think you are? I've become a liberal. I know. Yeah, I got it. Liberal. But let's move past it. All right? I'm not. You ready for this? They are. Let's talk about me and then we'll talk about y'all. That'll be better. This has not been the best sermon I've ever preached. We've started off with a bad mic. Everything's kind of gone haywire. It hasn't been excellent, and I recognize that. If you're a guest with us today, here's what I know. I know that in the first three minutes of me talking, you decided whether or not you were going to listen to what I had to say. See, that's what we know about preaching. Within the first three minutes, you decided whether or not I was trustworthy, whether or not you, you, you were going to listen, whether or not the things I had to say mattered. We actually make those kind of snap decisions about everybody that we encounter. Psychologists have studied this. This is true. You don't have to like it. But most of the people that you encounter have made a decision within the first three minutes of your encounter with them as to whether or not what you have, whether or not you're a trustworthy person, whether or not the things you have to say matter in their life. Okay? This is why the way you carry yourself in public matters, right? We talked about this a lot from Paul's writings to Timothy that a pastor must be well thought of by outsiders. I mentioned this in a podcast just a few weeks ago. It's not just a pastor. All of you have a responsibility to well thought, be well thought of by outsiders. We have to do all that we can to present ourselves to the world as followers of Jesus, good ambassadors of Christ. So here's the deal. Some of y'all are going, I don't need anything but the gospel. That is really all that you need except for this problem. People are going to decide whether or not they believe the gospel, not based upon the Bible that you hand them, but based upon the life that they're watching you live. The culture in which we live is the most experiential culture I've ever dealt with. And some of y'all are just as bad. All, most of y'all are just as bad. Okay? I mean, I, I, and it's not just a pagan thing. This is a Christian thing. I got some of y'all that will tell me the best idea since sliced bread the minute that you experience it. Right? You walk into my office and, Pastor, I did this, and this is the thing we should be doing because I experienced it yesterday. And I'm like... Well, that's good, but let's, let's take a step back and see if this is where we really need to be. No, no, I did it, and it's good. Okay? You know the best ice cream on the planet because you ate it. And I'm like, that's not the best ice cream on the planet because this other place has really good ice cream. I know what everybody else says, but I ate that, and that's where you need to be. I'm like, okay, cool. We're all experiential. Social media's done this to us, and then social media made all of us all of y'all, I already knew I was an expert, but the rest of y'all began to think you could be one. That was supposed to be funny. Y'all should laugh, otherwise you go home and judge me and think nothing I say matters. All right, so all that to say this. The people you're encountering in the world are experiential. That means that when you're trying to tell them about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's the question they're asking. They're asking, has it actually made an impact in your life? Let me see how you're living. Let me walk around in your faith for a minute. You got to get them to the gospel, but folks, I want you to know that they're making a decision about whether or not the gospel is trustworthy based upon whether or not you are living according to the word that you're telling them they're supposed to, to obey. But we still have to get to the Word. We have to get to the Word. That means do everything you can connect with lost people. Look at the heavens above and celebrate the beauty of the oceans and the intricacies of snowflakes and spider webs. Talk of the miracle of creation, healings, and protection. 
But never forget, people have to hear the word of God. They have to hear the word of God. No one can look at the cosmos and deduce Jesus. They may look around and go, there must be something more that exists. They may experience hurt and pain and recognize that the world is not supposed to be broken like this, but they don't look at all that and deduce a Jesus Christ who would come and die on a cross for our sins and be raised three days later. They may deduce that a God exists, but they couldn't deduce a God who would come in flesh and die on our behalf. The only way people can be saved is if they've experienced, they've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can look at the world around you and know that it's broken, but only the Bible explains for us how that brokenness can be repaired. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking intently. And Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright. And he sprang up and he began walking. It's an interesting thing. The Bible says at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him saying he had faith to be made well. The Bible sort of suggests that this man showed up to hear Paul speak but he recognized that this man was crippled. Paul went to him. He didn't go to Paul. He couldn't get to where Paul was. And the Bible says Paul looked over at him and there he was paying attention. What was Paul saying? Paul was looking at him, seeing that he had what faith to be made well, and he said in a loud voice, stand upright. This man was listening to Paul. He was hearing the word of God preached. He was engaging with the word, and when Paul looked over at him, and Paul said, well, well, why don't you get up? I wrestled with this a little bit this week. I wondered if, if when Paul looked at him and he said, stand up, that man said, well, me? Brother, I don't know if you know, like, did he first think thought this was some sort of sick joke? Stand up, I'm, I'm, I'm crippled. But the Bible says first that he had faith to be made well. In other words, this man already believed. And Paul looked at him and said, get up. Get up. Where was the power found? When Paul told him to stand up, the man was able to stand immediately. There was no question the Bible says he jumped up, stand upright on your feet. He sprung up and began walking. Folks, when that man jumped, I shouldn't have done that, look weird. Uh, when that man jumped up, do you know that everybody in their brother that was there was suddenly aware that something incredible had visited with them? They knew that a God was there. They knew that the divine had shown up. Some of you have shown up to church many times, maybe many, many times, maybe many years at this point in time, and you've walked in and out of church services regularly known that something had happened. Perhaps even that a God had shown up. Maybe you've never seen someone physically healed, but you've seen lives changed, and you knew in that moment that something crazy had taken place, that something out of the ordinary had broken through. 
but some of you have worked diligently even as you've seen the unordinary take place around you to explain it away, to suppress the truth. I ask you this morning, how is God made known? It lies true, the Bible says that God was made known through the healing of a man, the explanation of Paul and Barnabas. That God was made known as God showed up in that place and as Paul and Barnabas clarified who he was and in that place God was made known. How is God made known? He's made known to you today. that's, That's the challenging part of ministry if you want the truth of the matter is looking out week in and week out and knowing that some of you have heard the gospel over and over and over again. But regularly and repeatedly, you've explained away the need to repent, the need to surrender, the need to submit, the need to be changed. I sat with a guy one time who told me that he believed in predestination. And he believed some people were predestined to go to hell. He was a maintenance staff person at a Christian camp where he was exposed to the word of God daily, but he was not a Christian. He said, I don't believe any of that stuff, so I guess I'm just predestined not to believe. And I looked at him and I said, brother, You don't believe because you don't want to believe. You've not been predestined to an eternal punishment. You love your sin more than the thought of experiencing forgiveness. You love your pride more than surrender and submission. You love your reputation more than you fear God's wrath. How is God made known? God was made known on the cross of Calvary. God was made known as He came down in the flesh and dwelt among us. God has revealed Himself through His Word. God's presence is made known every time that he visits with a sinner and delivers them from their sin. See, here's what's wild. Sometimes as I stand up and preach to you, I'm aware that some sermons are great and some sermons are not. This one hasn't been. And some of you will leave and you've got a built-in excuse. It's not the best sermon I ever heard. So I'm not going to apply any of it to my life. You're welcome. I gave you one. You know what the problem is? One day you'll have to stand before the holy God. Say, God, I knew but I looked for every excuse I could find 
his response be gone I never knew you the people in Lystra came face to face with the greatest missionary that our world's ever known they experienced the hand of God at work among them but rather than glorify the God of the Bible they threw a party to a false God who would allow them to hold on to their own pride and understanding rather than turn from their sin they made an excuse how is God made known to you today do you know him see when it's all said and done this sermon can fall flat in 187 different ways but the responsibility for you is still the same you see, no, nobody is, can choose Christ for you. Nobody. See, the Bible is very plain and clear. Jesus Christ came and lived on this earth and died because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and we're in desperate need of a Savior. Some of you showed up today in love with your sin. And today I'm warning you that your sin will lead you to destruction. Today I'm, I'm asking you to turn from your sin, to repent. The Bible says that if we will confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. He will forgive you. He will change you. But here's what I'm afraid of because I see it happen week in and week out. I'm afraid that there's a couple of you here today who desperately need to hear that God loves you and has a plan for your life, who desperately need to hear that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. There's a few of you here today who know that you're living far from Christ and who today hear these words and know that God sent them for you But you found a way to explain it away, week in and week out. Oh, you've got great excuses. I'll get to it next week, next year. Well, I, I, I'm just a teenager doing what teenagers do. Oh, I'm just a young adult. Well, right now I'm raising kids, so I can't be worried about those things. I've got to do the other stuff. Well, maybe when I retire. My favorite. It's just not real life. God has made himself known to you today. And you can walk out and blame me for the fact that you did not give your life to Christ. But when you stand before holy God, the time for excuses is past.
Paul was stoned at Iconium, and as a result of that, he found himself at Lystra. And there he preached. Imagine the excuses Paul could have had. Imagine. What if Paul showed up and they said, what are you doing? Oh, they, they hated me there, so I'm just going to forget about preaching because y'all obviously have your own thing going here. I mean, Zeus and all the other stuff. So, you know, I don't know the language. I don't know the culture. Y'all don't know me. So I'm not even going to try. It's a waste of my time. Imagine the excuses. But he didn't. I know you got excuses. But there's hope. Maybe you've been making excuses for far too long, right? That's the person here I really want to speak to you today. And we're going to do it in two minutes. You're the person that's been making excuses for a week, a month. Some of you have been making excuses for years. Years. Some of you parents have been making excuses for years. I just, I just want my kids to like me. I want to be a cool parent. Whatever. You've been making excuses for years. My favorite one, well, I just haven't found the right church. Guess what? This one's screwed up too. <laughs> Hate to break the news. We are all messed up. Why don't you just tell the truth today for the first time in a long time? I didn't want a church. I didn't want accountability. I didn't really want Jesus. I liked my life. I liked my sin. But today, I'm turning from that. I'm asking Jesus to save me and forgive me. Give, hear me. He will. We're going to stand and sing in just a minute. Would you put down your excuses? Everybody's got an excuse for the record. Look at your neighbor. Look at your neighbor right now. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Look at him. They've got an excuse. Theirs might be better than yours. We can all turn them down. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd work. Take our excuses. Take our sin. Take our shame. Give us Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all stand with us as we sing.